City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Okay, acres of tar and cement. I've just ridden over them. Uh, warm morning out there on a bike, by the way, Kate, mm, wasn't it? Mm, oh, really warm. Beautiful. Yeah, wonderful. Yes, that's right. Beautiful seeing all this, the mm. morning sun shining through the mm. mist. The misty mm. fog, that's mm. right. Mm-hmm. And the, the, where the bike path goes under Royal Parade on the old railway track, I think that would be the coldest spot in Melbourne. Oh, God, yeah. You definitely need gloves when you go down there. <laughs> let me tell you. Everywhere around yeah. the rivers, like when you go over... The, I, can't, I don't know what river it is, but <laughs> uh, there's one on the way back uh, going up to Northgate. Mary like, Creek. Yeah, it must be Mary Creek. And, um, yeah, it's freezing over there as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we just had our little bitch for the morning. <laughs> Actually, we've got – no, it's worse. A tragedy, a real tragedy this morning. Well, what's happened? Well, I had it in my hand at home. I obviously didn't put it in the bag or my pocket. I had the tea, and oh. so now <gasps> we've only got ordinary tea bag, ordinary tea. <gasps> That's – is it still Such green tea? No, no, no. It's just ordinary old tea. Oh. Yeah. I'm I out. Thought, I thought you were going to say <laughs> yeah. that we're just going to drink hot water because you refuse well, to drink Lipton. No, we got, haven't got a special cup for Eugenia, but she, you know, now I'm being rejected. And of course, Eugenia Zulchenko is here and Meg, um, Meg Kimber is here and I'm Kevin Healy and I'm here, I think. And, um, it <laughs> All is, present it and accountable. It's the fourth Hello, Wednesday everyone. of the month and we're going to be talking to Fern Edwards very shortly. Um, who has done some? Well, you you've read her stuff, so tell yeah. Us some, yeah. Well, she studies. I'll pour some teas while you're telling me. Okay, she studies social food economies in cities. Mm. So it sort of looks at sustainable cities, food systems, social change, um, how we get together as communities, what the role of food and like cooking food and growing food is in those spaces. Wonderful. Yeah. Right, and now she's also interested in things like um, urban beekeeping. And oh, yeah. um, and uh, there's been some items in the last day or two about the fact that um, you know it, it, bees are almost now the canary in some ways mm-hmm. in the coal mine of the environment in terms of uh, in the what's coal mine happening. that is our planet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, uh, Ooh. yes, nice. <laughs> so, and of course, the other fact today is that. Um, you two are sort of on a farewell visit to city <laughs> limits. Uh. Well, I'm no, I'm just, I've just, I'm, I'll, I'll be away for a month. <laughs> Me, I can't get my words out. I need some tea. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll be still in Melbourne, but I'll be working for a month. Working, yeah. W O R K. That old chestnut. People, Eugenia, who put bloody. Profit for themselves ahead of this program, isn't it? Shocking, shocking. Because you're taking off for three months. Yes, well, Well, you were were leaving tonight, but you discovered a minor problem. Yeah, I I was um, sitting on the couch with my housemate last night, flicking through my passport, and she um, she had she had this sort of pale look on her face for a second. She's like, "You you have a second passport, don't you?" I was like, "No, no. What what do you mean?" I was like, "Oh, because it's expiring in in a couple of weeks." Oh, oh. God. <laughs> so my flight plans have been delayed somewhat. Right, you were going out to tonight, to but you've got to go office. next ride. Yeah. So you're away. You're coming. You'll be back on the program though in about. You're away for three months or something. Yeah, that's right. Where are you off to? I'm going to Europe. I'm going to visit a couple of cities where I have friends and spend uh, about a month in each city, just hanging out and doing oh, some creative stuff. It'll be great. Tough life. Isn't it? <laughs> 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 Very decadent. And of course, your timing's impeccable as you get away from Melbourne's winter. Mm, it wasn't yes. a coincidence. <laughs> no, no, really. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I'll be I'll be corresponding, guys. I'll be sending you the breaking news from. I've been planning issues all over the Good. You'll be a subject of an interview. Once you get back, you'll be the subject of about three interviews over about three weeks. I <laughs> uh, as that's the go. Have you have got anything, wonderful items to, to raise on your last days here? Uh, go, Eugenia. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think Eugenia's got a lot, yeah. <laughs> yeah she looks pretty crowded. I think, I think last night's stresses erased all my memories. Oh, dear. Um, what have you got, Kevin? Well, I've got a bit of stuff uh, here, but we'll, get it, we'll, we'll go to... Um, we will go to Fern fairly shortly. But this woman, Roseanne Barr, now I've never seen her on telly, but... Um, yeah, I saw her on the... Um, but she, she's been theater. sacked because she made a quite racist statement about blacks in America. Um, and um, 
she the bit I didn't like about this, she said, you know, she she limited people don't accept her explanation blaming the sleep drug. Well, if you're on a sleep drug, you still say what you think, as I see it, probably anyway. You wouldn't start calling you know blacks apes and things. Oh, or so using she's blaming it terms. on some medication that she medication. was on. Medication, right? Um, and uh, mm. I said, she says, I said to God, I am willing to accept whatever consequences this brings because I know I've done wrong. I'm going to accept what the consequences are, and I do, but I and I have, but. And this is, the, this is the bit I found fascinating. I've made myself a hate magnet, and as a Jew, it's just horrible. Now, I'm not sure what the last bit means. I mean, she could be anything as long as um, mm. what she said she said, and being being whatever doesn't change it, in my opinion. Yeah, muddying the water slightly, no, isn't it? <laughs> other than black, probably, because she wouldn't have said it if she was black, but other mm. than that. Mm. Okay, and this one I found absolutely fascinating. Um, many workers face a 26% rise in the cost of insurance with, within superannuation because of federal budget changes modelled by KPMG, which is one of the, as we know, the big four international mm. accounting companies. And they say that will cut the balance the workers get at the end because it's going to knock off, you know, and they, they'll, it'll reduce very much what workers are going to get at the end of their work life. Uh, but the bit I found fascinating, and I'm looking for an answer to this. You two might be able to help. You're smarter than me. Bloke from the insurance industry said that it was um, it was a good thing that this was happening, as the system will be fairer. Mm. Now, hitting them with 26% more, <laughs> are losing money. And the insurance company says it will be fairer. Can someone explain that? It's a good thing. Oh. I used to, for the Radiothon, we like pre-programmed a bunch of sound effects. I wish that I still had that one of like wind whistling through empty streets. <laughs> yeah. Kapow. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure he's got a good explanation for it, but he just doesn't give it. Um, so there you are. should interview him on the show and get him to talk more about that. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. Um, but Kelly, um, of course, said she won't cave into vested interest, but I'll wait and see. Um, now, last week we mentioned that um, due to the... And we're going to talk privatisation with... Oh, that's the other one this morning. We're going to be talking to um, John Passant also in the second half of the show. Cool. <clears throat> following a couple of weeks ago when the um, productivity... No, the, not the Productivity Commission in this case. It was the Infrastructure Australia, another government body which recommended that the states and federal sell anything that moves that makes a nice little turnover, mm. a nice little quid, and, um, and with the, government, the country would be millions of dollars, billions of dollars better off if, we, if, if the government sells anything that makes a quid to the private sector. And I thought I'd get John to comment on the impacts of privatisation, and I'm sure he'll come out in favour of it, but we'll see. Um, <laughs> we're to- are we talking like transport infrastructure? Is that we're talking, no, we're talking everything, you know, elect- no, well, the privatisation of electricity, water, Water, gas, mm-hmm. um, even um, right. you know, their f- states are now flogging off their uh, land registration and uh, mm. land titles offices. Et really? Yeah. Wow. Um, so it's those sort of issues. So we'll be talking to John about that. But one of the um, privatisations, of course, Optus was effectively because it got hold of the. It, it, it start out was a give, give was a gift from the government of a satellite system at the time. But it, of course, is um, charging people. It take, took over the World Cup this year, so people now enjoy the pleasure of paying for what they got free last year off SBS. Mm-hmm. But as we pointed out last week, uh, they had to give SBS back the matches for a couple of days to sort out a few glitches like blank screens <laughs> and people seeing nothing. Mm. Um, but that was SBS. <clears throat> they sold it to Optus, I understand. Yeah, well, it was sort of a situation where that they sold it to Optus because government cuts to their funding, oh. so they needed money. Mm. Um, so effectively, it um, goes back to government again. Oh. Uh, and but now they're showing them all again for the time being until Optus can sort it out. So it's a it's a great reflection on the the private sector mm. as I see it. Efficiency, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, I did think of an interesting article I read during the week. Mm-hmm. I was reading about um, apartments in Melbourne and how um, in I think it was 2015 was the um, was the benchmark where we kind of uh, where it tipped over to more apartments being constructed in Melbourne than single-family homes, which is interesting. And the article was talking about the kind of demographic divide of who lives where and, like, the the vast majority of uh, migrant families apparently in Australia end up living in apartments and, obviously, Australian-born families prefer, statistically, single-family homes. Yeah, so it's talking about the kind Mm. of opportunities and challenges of that. 
Mm. That's interesting because in Europe, I feel like there's a lot more um, like apartments and that people have sort of leases for life. Like there's a different Mm -hmm. kind of rental system. There's a different kind of like focus on what should be built, obviously because of density. Yeah. Because there's not as much sprawl. Yeah. Would that be your experience as well? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Much more apartments over there. Yeah. So maybe we're heading towards a a Melbourne that is similar. Yeah. Even though there is the capacity to sprawl. Like people joke about Dalesford being, you know, northern suburbs of of Northcote. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And that's one of Melbourne's Mm. biggest challenges, isn't it? Perhaps uh, when you get back in a month's time, uh, Mm. Meg, we could get Kate Shaw on the program from Melbourne because she, um, well, she not only did the research into the fact that the the public land was given to the uh, Kensington and where they had another one of these mixed developments where public property, public housing was given Uh up to private, but that they got the land for virtually nothing and she did research into that. But she's also done a fair bit of research into what you just talked about and the Europe Mm. situation where people have virtually permanent tenancy. Yeah, which Mm. is great. And um, speaking Mm. of getting land for nothing, part of um, (laughs) my explorations of um, Fern, who's going to be our our guest soon, um, led me to this website... um, 596 acres which then uh, which is a a social justice food growing on vacant lots in new york city Mm. and then they have a website that maps out all of the plots of land in new york that have been sold to developers for one dollar and they sell they Mm. buy it for a dollar and then they make huge profits that's amazing yeah and of course um slightly different but there's a local version called Three Thousand acres right which doesn't map out the developer land, I believe, but it does kind of pinpoint where there's opportunities for people to uh-huh. use underutilized land to grow food or have community projects there. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's, I think, part of what Fern yeah. has been studying. Mm. Yeah. Right, yeah. And just, well, two very small things, but they're, mm. not, they're not small in real terms. They're overnight, two items. One, the Supreme Court in America ruling in favour of Trump about, and virtually saying you can be as racist as you like mm. in your in your immigration <coughs> policy right. or refugee policy. But they call the travel ban. <clears throat> the, mm. Which wasn't surprising coming from their Supreme court given it's been stacked for years with right-wing yeah. people I won't say anything else um, and um, the other one of course was a report also that or not or just a report that it's a fact that at the moment 100 percent of inmates of in youth detention centers in the northern territory are indigenous 100 percent mm. are indigenous mm. Uh, it's just one hundred percent. That's incredible. Hundred percent, and that's um, that's following an inquiry into uh, problems in the sector, right? And yeah. like this, this is like what happens mm. with zero tolerance, like three strikes rules, which has been in the Northern Territory. I don't know if mm. it still is, but that I think is the reason yeah. that a lot of people are in jail and disproportionately yeah. affects Indigenous yeah. people. But also the um, yeah, Australia's track record in terms of um, people of color, Indigenous people, and and the way that that the system disadvantages them and um, and also people seeking asylum and refugees. Mm. Basically, it's amazing to see the American government basically do what the Australian government does and um, <clears throat> detain people at the border, separate children from families and cause stress and grief. And the, the Australia, this has been Australian policy for so long now. And in America... Trump tried to do it and, and couldn't. There was an outroar. Yeah. yeah, and he Whereas had to go back on that. So. He said it broke his heart to see children torn from their parents, and I thought, well, it could have been avoided if you hadn't done it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, that's the point. Let's mm. get on to Fern Edwards and um, yep. talk about gardens and things. Mm. Are you into riffs, licks and bands, smashing skins with sticks? Are you wanting more rock booming from your box? Well, if so, tune in to Rockbox, kicking off weekly from Sunday the 1st of July at midnight. That's right, every week after that, 12am every single Sunday night. Showcasing a diverse range of pure rock from Australia and OS bands. We're talking sludge rock, raw rock, modern, old, psychedelic rock, stoner, chill, crust even a bit of punk rock, and whatever else is rock-orientated. With myself, Faith, presenting this magazine-styled radio show, also have segments and interviews. So check it out, Rockbox, exclusively on 3CR, 855 AM. Fight for your mic. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 
or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Fight for your mind. Okay, on the line we've got Fern Edwards, who's just um, been reporting on a research she's done. But um, seeing I don't know as much about it as you do, well, in fact, why don't we ask Fern? Why don't we ask Fern mm-hmm. herself yeah. um, to tell us what it was, rather than try to explain something we don't know much about? Fern, um, what, just background the research you've done, and why have we got you on today? Hi, Kevin. Um, so I've been part of a European Research Council-funded project um, based at Trinity College Dublin. And it's called Share City, and it's basically about how people are sharing food in cities and the actual and sustainability potential of food sharing. So what does food sharing mean in the city today? Yeah. Right, and, and this involved a number of countries, didn't it, in the research, did it not? Yeah, so just to briefly explain this project, it's like a five-year project, so it's, it's quite large. Um, so there's a team of us. And what we did first of all is we put together a database of 100 cities around the world and we looked at food sharing in very broad terms. And so we sort of considered the skills, spaces and stuffs of food sharing. So looking at how people exchange, um, you know, uh, I suppose, you know, like food swaps, community gardens, uh, verge gardens, using different technologies to cook, uh, prepare meals in homes and sell them. So all these different forms of food sharing very broadly. And then we sort of mapped them in 100 cities around the world and we found over 4,000 initiatives. Hmm. So, yeah, sorry. It's just <laughs> like amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And, and that was really incredible because it was sort of, a lot of these initiatives are often sort of hidden and sort of distributed, so you don't really you don't really see them. You know, the sort of mm. sort of small little websites here and there and that kind of thing. Mm. So by putting them together as a database, we could see all this diversity in all these different types of food sharing activities that are happening everywhere and the different trends that are going on. Mm. And, um, I, and, and, I, and I imagine um, when you look at them like that in the aggregate, it starts to um, look not like individual initiatives here and there, but like a big movement that's happening in many places around the world. Exactly. And that's, I suppose that was one of the things that was so interesting for us. And then to sort of see how different cities have different types of food sharing and and why. So what we did then is to understand that sort of, I suppose, thick description of, um, you know, what is going on actually in the cities. Is that each member of the team went out and we did three months of research in in different cities around the world. So we looked at nine different cities. Melbourne was one of those. So I looked personally. I looked at uh, did research in Melbourne, and I also worked in Barcelona. Yeah. Mm. The Share City website. When I looked at it um, as part of preparing to talk to you today, uh, I just wrote down Share City and then a dash, and then wrote Wow and like two exclamation <laughs> marks because um, it's such a huge undertaking, and it's like so um, sort of well mapped out for ease of use, where you can sort of search any city you know, of the 100 cities that are around the world. And then you can sort of see like hot food or raw produce or, you know, whatever the type of thing is. I'm just wondering, like, there's a couple of questions I have about that. One is like sort of the um, the design of the website and how that was decided upon because it's very easy to use. But also, you know, which, which 100 cities did you decide on and how on earth did you gather all that data? Because just even for Melbourne, there's so m- many, like mm. everything that is going on here. Yeah. yeah, it was it was a big job. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Five years. <laughs> Five years. I was hoping, in fact, that the next ten minutes you might list the four thousand. <laughs> people, people can check themselves on the internet. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, the whole team. I think it took us about three to four months to collate all that data, mm. and we had to just. Oh, you know, it, it was a big job and we had to sort of define what food sharing meant for us as mm. a research team. And then we just meticulously went through and actually uh, used, we looked at things that had an online presence. Right. And so it doesn't include all food sharing. I'm sure there's much many more out there which are not online. Mm-hmm. But, but that was sort of one of the lenses that we had to use to, to do the research. And, um, yeah, and then we sort of just put them together and then collaboratively we designed the... Um, the, the the database as well as as a team, 
and so that was that was also a massive job mm. and um yeah it was it was, it was great i mean we we had published papers on, on how we brought this database right. together yeah, yeah. um and also we made it searchable so everyone could sort of jump on and have a look and and see what's going on around the world in those 100 cities around the world i can't remember exactly the criteria for selection of those cities um but it's actually on the website because there was like we used different mm. different types of cities, different um, oh I can't remember the words, but mm. um, yeah, they were sort of we used a, a different ways of categorizing cities, and yeah. we sort of put them together to sort of select those final one hundred. But it's all explained in detail on the share city site as well. Yeah. So that it wasn't necessarily just the biggest cities around the world because it does cover like every continent in the world, right? Is that correct? Uh, I can't remember. It's it's Europe. We we do admit that it is European heavy, but right. includes. I, I looked at. I did a. I compiled the data for the Australian New Zealand cities, and we've got seven across Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. We've also got some in Asia. We've got some in South America. Quite a few in America because of the in, like the indices, the, the categories that we use, and then mm. in Europe and the UK. So. Mm. Uh, yeah. I, I imagine it must have been a lot easier to um, look in certain languages that the research team was familiar with. So, well, you know. we also had to get in people who could speak different languages, and we did right. try and cover different languages as well ourselves. Yeah, well. So, I speak some Spanish, so we we did some of that as well. Yeah. yeah. And Australia, of course, um, unless we do grow our own food and kind keep it close, we really suffer badly from the food miles problem, do we not? Um, unless we, we can grow food far more locally here. Mm. I suppose mm. one thing that was really stand out for me, looking at the, the contrast between Melbourne and Barcelona, is just we can grow a lot of food in the city here in Melbourne because we have, we have a lot more space. We have a lot less high urban density here than we do in Barcelona. Um, and also such a fantastic climate. So there's so much potential to grow, but also people are already doing it as well. So mm. in terms of that food miles, like we can actually do things here in Melbourne, and that was one of the really exciting things about this project. And it, it's just such a – it's a really – doing this kind of research is just so much fun because you, <laughs> it's all about hope, you know, mm. your people out mm. there who are getting together and it's all about social inclusion and – getting to know your neighbours and doing something, being very proactive about rebuilding a city and getting together with other people to do that. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, really I was, I was reading um, your article in The Conversation this morning and I, I love this bit where you talk about it as a really visceral experience, the kind of yeah. cooking and sharing and harvesting and, and doing it together with your friends. And, and that was really lovely. To, I mean, that was just... Sorry, I can talk about this for hours. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um it was beautiful because like, when I was working with one group, for example, um, Open Table, which is this gorgeous community group here in Melbourne, and they um, they get food donated from food rescue organisations such as Second Bite and local businesses, and then they cook that food up, which wouldn't would otherwise go to waste, to feed people in the local community, and it's sort of they do that in collaboration with neighbourhood houses and community centres and, and places like that. But it's it's having that experience of being able to walk into a room and and peel a potato so anyone can participate, anyone can grab that food and, and start chopping up and and becoming part of a community through that that visceral but you know, that that sort of doing mm. as opposed to having to get to know someone or you know, it's just like you just grab a potato and start mm-hmm. and start peeling it. Have you um, have you found through your research that there's a, a demand for that kind of um, lifestyle in the modern world? Because you know it, it's not exactly the way that uh, Australian society, for example, has been developing in the last fifty years or so. We've kind of tended towards um, sort of single families that do everything for themselves and and don't collaborate in that way. Yeah. What have you heard from people who participate in these kind of initiatives? Are they um, finding that it meets some sort of social or emotional need that wasn't met before? Oh, completely, completely, mm. and it's just a, it's such a rewarding experience. Um, yeah, and I suppose also what, yeah, no, definitely that comes through incredibly strongly. It's not just about getting a free meal at mm. all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's about it's a, you get that too, but it's it's about the um, it's about the people that you're going to see each week. But also for me as a researcher, it was really lovely because you you just never knew what you're going to expect. You never know who's going to show up. You never know. 
what new opportunities are going to come out of that experience. Mm. You know, it's it's just it gives you this beautiful opening into a different worlds and understanding other uh, where other people have come from that you might not necessarily meet otherwise. So it's this beautiful entrance for people to sort of get to know other people and ways of life and opportunities. Mm. Food's a really powerful way to do that. And um, it's uh, it's said in the article that you wrote for The Conversation that um, Melbourne is the third most active food-sharing city after London and New York. Yeah. Is that um, – obviously London, New York and Melbourne are all really – big cities is that are they the most active food sharing because they're this the biggest or is there like another city that's per mm. capita more um more of a food sharing space that's a great question mm. <laughs> <laughs> I need to jump on the website to answer that one, I i'm sorry I, I i don't know off the top of my head but that's um, okay. we probably have answered that somewhere in the project yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it'll be yeah. it'll be interesting to see if there's something about yeah. Melbourne in its culture or its economy or the way it's designed as a city that encourages food sharing. Exactly, yeah. or whether people are just like pushing hard and yeah. there's enough people that, that they're coming together. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, no, I think that is also the case here in Melbourne. Mm. I've been researching food in, in Melbourne for, mm. like, I don't know, about 14 years or something and there's been this amazing, I mean, we've, we've as I said before, we've, we've got the low urban density so we can actually do things in mm-hmm. our backyards and yeah. on our street edges and things like that. We've got the climate... We've also got a history of, you know, um, of backyard gardening. We've got all these um, people who've arrived in Australia and brought these amazing gardening traditions with them. Yeah. And then we've got this amazing sustainability, um, food sustainability movement that just mm. keeps getting bigger and bigger and stronger. And um, But also we're a foodie culture. Yeah. So I think all of that comes together to create this amazing, amazing sort of sustainable urban food movement. And I think it's particularly strong here in Melbourne. Definitely. Mm. And one of the interesting things, the, the garden has been going for years at the um, at the children's farm in Collingwood, for instance, but also there's a few sprung up locally where I live around Brunswick, mm-hmm. where they where it, it's one of its great advantages is it gets people of all sorts of backgrounds and nationalities together, um, and I think that's one of the great one of the great advantages of this sort of thing. Yeah, oh, completely. I, I've, yeah, as I said before, I, I absolutely love doing this kind of research because. As an anthropologist, I just I just get to participate <laughs> and um, and yeah, meet all these wonderful people. And I, I don't know, for me, even just coming in and, and doing the research, it's incredibly rewarding. So for people who are doing this and, and building up on these networks over years, it must be fantastic because mm. you're establishing new connections in the community, mm. which you, know, you mightn't get otherwise. Oh, in your article, um, Fern, you say that the policy and the law need to catch up with what's happening. So obviously there's a lot going on in Melbourne. What what do you see as the shortcomings of the policy and law areas? Look, I think in just in general terms, because you can pull that apart in many different ways, because mm. the food sharing definition was very broad. Mm. Um, it was more about just traditional laws. You know, things are moving quickly. And... I suppose one of the aspects that we were particularly interested in with this project is that we're looking at information communication technology enables food sharing activities. So by having that online presence, that people might be using technologies in different ways to sort of enable different forms of food sharing. Mm. So when you talk about um, policies and stuff, it was more about, you know, people, more and more people are interested in growing food in the city. I think, you know, and um, but also preparing food at home, and so there's. It's about changing traditional land use planning to accept different forms. That we start to accept urban agriculture within the planning structure, so it can mm-hmm. at least be recognised as a as a possible land use. As a land use type, yeah. Yeah, and then um, and then different types of urban ag, I suppose, interest me as well. Um, you know, because urban agriculture doesn't need to mean just the traditional community garden model, which has got a big fence and everything. It, it mm-hmm. could be a space that you move through. Mm-hmm. It could be those tiny you know, interstitial, like little bits of spaces in between blocks. And one of the comments that was coming from 3,000 Acres, who's doing a lot of work in this area, um, was that, you know, it can also be temporary land use. So it's about sort of, uh, I suppose, adapting traditional plan- land planning to sort of consider these different forms of temporary and, and 
bit too bland. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. there's obviously yeah. a, a huge amount of land in our cities that's um, sort of underutilised or overlooked exactly. because it doesn't really fit easily in a, cate- in a planning category. Mm. Um, yeah. So, And then there are those rules about things like you can't – what you can or can't grow on your front – yeah, um, nature strip, nature for example. Strip, yeah. yeah, which I love to but see I, just food going everywhere. Yeah, exactly. like yeah. I think people are, I mean, I think the councils are, are really listening. Yeah. And it seems to be this sort of, a bit of a push and pull, you know. So yeah. there's, there's a groundswell, there's people doing this, councils are noticing, and then they're putting some regulations in place to sort of help manage that so it, it can be safe for everybody. Yeah. Um, other councils are like, oh, there's a, you know, there's a real push forward for this, and so we're going to, you know, we're going to sort of start uh, encouraging people to do this, so mm-hmm. or making it more accessible. So, I think it's, you know, community and local councils sort of pushing and working together <laughs> back and yeah, forth yeah. to sort of establish those new policies. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's you know, it still needs to get a bit push forward a bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Even the big end of town seems to be getting on the bandwagon because there's been reports recently where they are arguing that the, the rooftops of high-rise office developments, etc., could be used for growing things. Oh, and please. So, you know, it's, um, <laughs> whether it gets very far, but there's a few people moving in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, and from, a, from an architectural point of view, that has huge advantages for um, sustainability generally. Like it decreases yeah. the heat island effect in the city mm-hmm. and... Um, yeah, helps to regulate the temperature within the building, all these great things. Mm. Um, Fern, we might, this might need to be our last question, perhaps, sure. um, but I just wanted to know, like, the the ShareCity database is so impressive um, just because it's so – it just has so much information. Is there a plan for it to be maintained into the future? Because obviously databases, the greatest weakness of databases is, you know, the information that gets put into them as information changes. Yeah. So um, what do you, what's your plans with that? Um, well, another good question there. <laughs> I suppose one of the things we noticed already in the project that's been going for about two and a half years now mm. um, is that, yeah, a lot of these food um, things, are, they come and go. And so yeah. the database has been really interesting in that because it, it sort of is this record of, it, and it has to be updated, exactly mm. as you say. Yeah. Um, the project itself is for five years. Mm. We... So the first step was the database. The second step was the ethnographic research of going into the cities in depth to mm. study things in depth. But what they're doing now is to sort of develop more toolkit to help encourage food sharing, and they'll be doing that through a design phase for the rest of the project. Yeah. So I'm not involved in that part, so I'm not quite sure, but I think mm. there will be a regular update. Yeah. But what I encourage people... So ShareCity is definitely continuing the project overall. Mm. And what I would just encourage people to do is to jump online and have a look at the website where they're constantly updating mm-hmm. what's going on. Yeah. And I'm not sure if there's a newsletter feature there, but just to jump on board and, and hopefully mm. the database will be part of that, the updating. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm sorry, I can't give you a solid answer. It'd, it'd, be really, um, it'd be really wonderful if we could use some of these technologies that make these spaces possible in the first place where people could, you know, up upload information on their phones or something yeah. Yeah. is a way of managing this mm. info sustainably because, like you say, it's a great resource and it would be a shame if mm. it was... It's fantastic. Yeah, definitely, um, no, it would be really good to think about that some more. And But there's also all the details for the Share City project. Um, the head of the project, she's based in Ireland. I'm sure she'd be mm. very happy to <laughs> receive our email. Can do it. <laughs> so all the, all the contact details are <laughs> and, all, and all the details for people in Melbourne who want to get involved here are on the website where they they opportunities for where they can get involved. So yeah. that's uh, yeah. good. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And just the, the, I mean, I spoke to so many people who, who are volunteering a lot to these projects and mm. And the rewards, it was just, you know, they just really enjoyed it. So mm. I highly, and the, and the diversity of projects that are there means that there's something for everyone. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So I really encourage people to have a look online and um, just try and get involved. Just jump on and see what it's like. Thanks so much for your time today, Fern. All right, Thanks, Fern. You're, you're leaving Australia again today to get off and research somewhere else. But um, next yeah. time you're back, we'll get you up and we'll update the whole thing. Yeah, cool. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Fern, for your time. Okay. Bye-bye. It was fortuitous, in fact, in that because um, she she is heading back, I think, to Barcelona. Um, Great pronunciation, um, Kevin. And she... um, 
and um, she flies out at one o'clock today, so we're able to interview her this morning. Which was I bet she updated her passport. <laughs> <laughs> She's a yeah. professional. Yeah. Yeah, you, won't, you, won't, you won't be meeting at the airport now. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Shall we take a little music break and then we'll get Let John Pass on the line? Yeah. Yep. Oh, I'm sure we just played John's favourite music. Um, <laughs> that was Blue King Brown. Blue King Brown. Blame Meg for that, John. <laughs> I enjoyed that. I was yeah. having a dance. Yeah, yeah. Meg and Eugenia were dancing around the studio here. <laughs> and, um, John... I prefer Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> <laughs> Next time you're on, John, I'll put Radio, that on. John. Okay. <laughs> and John Passett, of course, is a regular commentator on economic issues. And I just got you on today, John, because... Well, there's two things. The, the one's an accidental one, but I'll get on to you later because it's Radiothon time. We might even hit you for a quid now we got you. But, um, <laughs> but, but, also, um, but also about three weeks ago, the Infrastructure Australia, a government body, came out with a report that said if the state and federal government virtually privatised everything that moved that made a quid, those who haven't yet privatised electricity and water and um, the estates now even privatising their land registry offices, land title offices... The state, the government would be billions of dollars better off. Is that the case, do you think, that we are better off when we privatise things? Well, can I just start off by saying that you stole my punchline, which was going to be that they're privatising everything. That was their basic <laughs> argument. Yeah, and, uh, oh, well, okay. And well, well, now, well, now we've had the interview. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, John. It's been great. And that, that we would be, you know, I think it was $66 billion better off. Yeah, it was that, it was that so. sort of figure, yeah. But that yeah. sort of 2031 to 47 or something. Um, and, of course, uh, a bit like all pie-in-the-sky promises, all you have to do is wait. It's a bit like company tax cuts. If they go through for big business, we'll all get better wages and there'll be more people employed and there'll be a new, new nirvana. Of course, it's nonsense. What it really is about is just transferring ownership of those assets that still remain in state hands into private hands where they can make a profit. And uh, if you read the report, uh, what's it based on? It's based on, well, I'll just give you one example, if I can, when it's talking about reforming the electricity market. So it's identified a number of different priorities, and it does a number of different models. Well, it does modelling in each of these priority areas, such as road transport, water sector, electricity market, and transport services. But in relation to the electricity market, Here's what it says about a mo- its modelling. The modelling assumes that increased competition would mean that less expenditure would be required to produce the same level of output. So in other words, it's all about, well, private enterprise does things mm. much better than the state. Therefore, what we need to do is hand it over to competitive private enterprise. And, of course, uh, the failure of this program in the past doesn't seem to have impinged on the thinking of mm. infrastructure Australia um, or the politics of it. What we need to do is sell off, I don't know, what's the next major asset we could sell off in Australia? Well, water has been corporatised in many places but hasn't actually been privatised, although private yeah. companies run much of it, so it's pretty much privatised. But that's one they talk about, of course. Yes, and energy um, is another one. Of course, energy is really complex because you've got energy production, you've got energy transfers, and then you've got energy retailing. So there are three different components of the energy market. But uh, looking at the energy market, I'm reminded of Tony Abbott recently, um, our dear departed Prime Minister, who's much, much, who's much lamented in the loss of his insights into Australian politics and world politics, um, who said that, well, maybe we should have a government-run coal um, energy um, provider, a government-run um, coal power station. And I think, well, hang on, here's the man who says the free market is the end all mm. and be all and of everything. Well, they're government-subsidised anyway. Government has, to, government has to intervene. And, of course, the other point is that if you look at the energy market, one of the major concerns here is the non-cost of pollution and that the externality that pollution creates and the cost that it creates by um, greenhouse gas emissions isn't compensated for in the price or or any tax that's put on those who use coal-fired power stations. Plus, as you mentioned, Meg, the 
subsidies that mm. coal-fired power stations already get anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think basically the argument here is privatisation is good because the competitive market can provide better outcomes than um, state in, state-run institutions. Now, the problem with state-run institutions like rail and so forth is that not that they can't be efficient, but they're underfunded. <laughs> I mean, mm. They're not provided adequately for in a neoliberal society. And this is the first step towards privatisation. It's the classic that Chomsky identified. What you do is run down the, the funding for it, run down the number of employees, so you cut down on the services, and then you say, oh, well, it's not working very well, so what we have to do is sell it off to private enterprise. Mm. If you funded public enterprises like... Uh, transport and so forth, uh, and uh, public created... housing is a good example. Public well, housing, where they just cut money example. out altogether. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what we do is sell off those um, areas of public housing that are going to make lots of profit for government, on the excuse that we'll use that money for more public housing elsewhere. Mm. Now, of course, the, the more public housing doesn't happen, or if it does so far out of town that people are so far away from jobs that it's a useless thing. Or even if they're within close range of public transport, they still have to travel two hours or an hour and a half every day to get into work. Um, so the solution to me is not more public, sorry, more private enterprise. The solution is addressing human need, and that human need is being able to use, to get to work, being able to use hospitals, having adequate housing, mm-hmm. um, and getting your water okay and not at exorbitant cost. Mm. I mean, this stuff about reforming the electricity market, for example, which is one of the priority areas that it identifies, talking about cheaper costs, my um, local independent regulator has just agreed to allow um, energy providers in the ACT to increase their costs by 14% from Mm. 1 July. Mm. And that's a huge increase. Mm. Um, my wages haven't gone up 14% to be able to or, or people's work, working people's wages haven't gone up that mm. sort of amount. And I think that's a wider issue that also needs to be fitted in here. As our wages are declining or real wages are declining or stagnating, uh, we've got this process of privatisation which doesn't lead to better services at lower costs. It leads yeah. to worse services at higher costs yeah. as a generalisation, but more profits for the, for the owners. Then... Um, the answer seems to me to be a more holistic approach, which says there are human needs that need to be satisfied here, which is addressing climate change, which is getting people to and from work in an adequate space of time, uh, having uh, appropriate public housing, having a, an insured and guaranteed supply of energy and of uh, transport and of um, uh, and, and so forth, and of water, and that these things can't be delivered by private enterprises. You've really got to be looking at a public institution that, that does it um, properly funded. And that means thinking about, well, how do you properly fund road transport or, or public transport in Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane or whatever? And, of course, then you get back to, well, that needs to, we need to think about taxing um, those in society who can pay more for it. So we need to think about wealth taxes on the rich and wealthy. We need to think about higher income tax rates. We need to think about our companies paying enough tax and for those who aren't, how we can get more money out of them so that they can provide these sorts of services to ordinary working and poor Australians. And mm. they're the sorts of things that aren't on the agenda of Infrastructure Australia because it's caught within that neoliberal dream of uh, private enterprise does everything better. You know, mm. if we're talking about private enterprise does everything better, it reminds me of the recent Federal Liberal Council meeting in, uh, I can't remember which, which city it was in, which decided overwhelmingly that the ABC should be sold off. Yeah. Now, here's, here's a classic example of privatisation. Let's sell off the ABC. Well, we've got an example of a privatised uh, offering from Optus of the World Cup, which went very well. It went so well, in fact, that SBS had to take over the offerings, and SBS is a publicly funded institution. Yeah, I was going to make uh, that point. I better make that point because Optus was really handed its license on a plate by the Hawke-Keating government, thanks to John Button at the time. And um, we've seen the efficiency of the private sector versus the public sector this week. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Who provided the coverage? 
that we needed. It was SPS. Who didn't provide it, it was Optus. Um, there's a classic example. And, of course, Optus only got this licence because the Abbott government in 2014 um, cut funding to SBS so that the World Cup rights that it had won, it had to then sell off to Optus to get the money back to pay for its other services. Oh, so so uh, if sad. you funded If you funded SBS properly then we wouldn't have been in this bind in the first place. But, mm. uh, and, of course, for regional and rural Australia, so the idea of selling off ABC is just madness. Because That's crazy. It's the service. Mm. That, it's the one institution that can provide services to people there without having to worry about making a profit. Mm. No institution, no private institution, no private company is going to take up the rural services of the ABC because not profitable. So there's a human need there of people in the in the bush, in rural and regional areas, to get information, um, to be able to communicate with other people, which ABC provides, which Murdoch isn't going to provide, um, or uh, Fairfax aren't going to provide, or Channel 7 or Channel 9 aren't going to provide. So uh, the idea, this idealised idea of the reality of, um, the idealised idea of private enterprise being able to provide services better than public enterprise is nothing. If we funded public enterprises better and we gave democracy and decision-making to workers in those industries, for example, to throw another interesting point in, then we'd have a much better system. Imagine if the rail workers and the tram workers were making decisions about transport services in conjunction with community groups so that we satisfy the human needs of the workers and the people who and the users and then we'd be looking at a much better um, tram system bus system train system electricity provision system and so forth John. electricity yeah <laughs> oh, that's true i just want to we're, we're we're running out of time a little bit and i really want to ask you this particular question because you mentioned before about the the um the report said that competition was would be the solution to like yep. things that won't work properly. Can you break down this idea that competition is going to make better services? Do you know what I mean? Services, like, yeah. why has that become such a thing? Like, people will say that, but is that true? Like, no, it's not true. If you look at the history of privatisations in Australia, you look at the history of privatisations in Europe and the UK. The provision of better services, averages costs, has been. Um, rebutted time and again that that the reduced costs don't happen or if they do they're built on the inadequate Mm. provision of those services themselves Mm. but normally what happens is a rundown in the services to make more profit so instead of renewing poles Mm. and wires in the electricity sector for example they keep on using ones that are out of date because Mm. to use to, to implement a program of new wires and poles would cost them too much money and would cut into their mm. profits. So and to raise workers' wa- wages and mm. all this kind of thing. Well, then the other, that's yeah. the other side of it as well. So what they mean by, by increased competition, well, what they say is the increased competition would lead to less expenditure. Yeah. Well, uh, yes, there might be less expenditure, but it's less expenditure on things that need to For be spent sense. on. Yeah. Yeah. And for example, on wages, but also on basic infrastructure. So mm. they don't spend more on poles and wires. They don't spend more on new trains or in New South Wales. If they do spend more on new trains, they're new trains that, that don't actually run on the lines because they're too big for some of the stations right. or whatever the ma- whatever the stupidity of the programming is. But so the, the idea is, oh, if we give it to private enterprise, there'll be less expenditure that they need on the particular service, but they uh, but they can still deliver the same outputs. Well, mm. uh, this this is just nonsense. It's mm. pie in the sky stuff. Why it... is it that private enterprise can deliver this stuff better at reduced cost? There's no guarantee that that happens. And the the analysis of what we see in in, in Australia and overseas has been that mm. it produces higher costs and less efficient outcomes. And, and John, is it is it would it be true to say that maybe this kind of competition could work in other markets to improve efficiency? But it it's occurs to me that with infrastructure, there's not that much scope for competition, right? Like there's only one set of pipes going <laughs> taking yes, the water right. around yeah. Melbourne, right? Yeah. Like it's not That's like they're right. going to invent That's a new right. system to do so, that. Yeah. 
If you look at the the um, privatisation of airports, for example, basically they're monopolies, and you give them mm. over to private enterprise, so they jack up the price of user charges for Qantas who pass it on to yeah. Yeah. us. Um, the railway between um, airports to, uh, say, Central in Sydney is a monopoly, and so the price of getting from Central to Sydney Airport by railway is absolutely astro- astronomical compared to normal state-run mm. enterprises. So, yeah. uh, you know, you're privatising basically monopolies because yeah. it's not profitable to, to private... So, because private enterprise, say, oh, once I get control of this, I can jack prices up because yeah. I'm the only one providing the service yeah, so I can exactly. make real economic rent. So any, yeah. any efficient gain in efficiencies they do gain won't necessarily be passed on to the consumer, right? Mm. That's right. It'll well, go into well, the Although it's pocket. a bit rich yeah. in the past week or so when privatised Qantas attacked the privatisation of the airports themselves, <laughs> but never mind. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> or privatise the Commonwealth Bank, you know, that's Commonwealth. Yeah. Yeah. Look, at, look at the that one worked a I treat. Mean, <laughs> <laughs> massive cuts in workers, cuts to their wages, worse provision of services, and now we've got $700 million in fines on the Commonwealth Bank and more and more horror stories coming yeah. out. And jo- so, John, we got a caller earlier. We announced you up front of the program, and he's caller um, ringing saying, looking forward to John Passon's segment. And this is a question we couldn't answer. On the Land Titles Office, can you please um, please mention the similar gift of the company register from, a- from ASIC to the um, same profiteers? Do you know anything about that? Um, not much. I read about it a, a little while ago, but it basically means that at the moment, if you want to find out details about a company, then you mm. go into ASIC and they'll have a list of those companies uh. and... Um, it's going to be sold off to. Oh, I did see that. That's right. You reminded me as well. Which I means did see that. It. You're yes, going to have yes. to pay. Presumably, you'll have to pay yeah. for that's access right. to that's that right. information. So it's a dumbing down. And there were questions of privacy society. involved as well. That's right. Mm. I remember coming yeah. up. Yeah. Um, John, we're going to have to go, but look, we will hit you because it has been Radiothon and we're still chasing our target. So we'll. Um... How far off <laughs> our target are we? Um... We'll get... <laughs> are you up for privatisation? <laughs> 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 yes. You can buy. This you keeps can, us independent. You can, in, you can in, buy us if you want us. Bringing in lots of money. <laughs> you can buy us. If, we're up for sale. Come on. Uh, <laughs> to the highest bidder. Yeah, okay. So Lovely we'll, to talk to you again. Thanks for the call. Okay, John. Thank you. All the best. Right. Bye-bye. Thanks, Thanks John. So okay, John Passant and uh, 9.59. We better go. And yeah, Well, I'm next, next week's John... John McPherson, but you don't care. You won't be here. Aww, we'll be listening. <laughs> anyway, yeah. have a wonderful trip. Thank you so um, much. And Meg, um, thoroughly enjoy working for capitalism for the Thank next Thank you. Month. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> See you all in a bit. See you later.